Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. And my name is Audra. The son and the mom. The son. All right, we <laughs> That's have... your new thing, the son and the mom. I know, it just it's so natural. <laughs> I say peace out at the end of every episode, which is something <laughs> I never say. Dork. <laughs> and I don't know why Dork. I'm saying it. <laughs> um, so we have lots, lots of, and lots of, co- of interesting content today. Multiple things. We do. We First do. of all, last week I was a little quiet on the podcast. And you were. There's a reason for this. Last week... I was, it was just a dragging week. It's LA is notorious for just being kind of a crappy place, especially the LA scene. So I was just kind of down in the dumps. It's hard trying to be a musician, even if you're just going to school. There's, you feel like in order to make it, you have to do so many different things. You have to do everything. You want to do, like I'm trying to rehearse with my friend Cole, and we're trying to get this music out and, and get shows and, and a tour going. At the same time, I'm, ha- I'm, I'm dealing with multiple jazz classes in school, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan of jazz music. So, Gasp! I know. So it's just, sometimes it feels like you, oh, wait. you move and here our, and, and, you're, and, because, and your mom's making you do a podcast. <laughs> well, no. See, this is fun. <laughs> okay. Good. Also, I learn from this, too, which is nice. Well, that was the goal of this, was to anybody moving to L.A. or getting into either you know music or even acting it could go either way even though we talk about music a lot your experience is going to be the same you know kind of experiences that most people would have right you know feeling homesick feeling overwhelmed feeling like you know you're coming from a small town and going to this big place where you feel like you might change a whole bunch you're seeing things that you might not necessarily think are cool right and then seeing very cool things so there's like a big contrast right um, so last, um, was it Monday? Or I guess this Monday. I went to Dominic mm-hmm. Fike, an upcoming artist from uh, Florida, I think Naples. Um, he got a big record deal from Columbia Records. I met him before his EP titled uh, Don't Forget About Me on Spotify. It's very good. Came out. Um, that was a fun show. Lots of crazy LA show? people with crossbody bags on. That was at the Echo in uh, Echo Park. Cool oh, wait, venue. so my mom crossbody bag is cool? Yeah, I guess it is if it's worth $400. Oh, no, mine's 68, <laughs> mine right. $68. Right, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, Bummer. What else, what else, what else? I guess uh, I guess um, I went to, I've been rehearsing, like I said before, with my friend Cole Pendry on Instagram at R-Y-D-Y-R, Ryder. Uh, so your band name is Ryder. Yes, I guess the band name, it used to be his artist name, but now I think it's the band name. Uh, and then okay. he's just Cole Pendry. We've got he's got an EP that we he is hoping on uh, releasing a few singles first, and then the EP next few months, I guess. Mm-hmm. The first single is supposed to come out within the month, I think. Cool. Within the next thirty days. Um, but we were rehearsing. We've been rehearsing at Amp Studios, Amp Rehearsal. I don't know, whatever you want to call it in uh, on Lancashire Boulevard in North Hollywood, which is a su- su- uh, cool artsy area. Um, lots of different coffee shops. We got an acai bowl today after rehearsal, which was ooh acai bowl, super LA, very LA. But um, that is right down the street from Laurel Canyon, which is Laurel sort of Canyon. the focal point of our podcast today. Sort of, it's the focal. Point. It is. It's very important and it's very cool. So, mom, why don't you take it from here with the information? It's, it's the canyon to be at Laurel mm-hmm. Canyon. Um. Yes, we're talking about Laurel Canyon today. We're talking about f- the folk music scene that came out of Laurel Canyon. We're talking about sex and drugs and f- 
folk rock and roll and <laughs> all kinds of fun stuff. And I had numerous flashbacks to high school, college, my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little excited. I this there's a lot of content here. I'm you know, I'm I'm gonna go over as much of it as possible to make you to try to paint a picture of what it was like. But there's so much stuff on the internet, interviews, concerts, you know, all kinds of stuff you can go on and look up if you're interested in anybody else I talk about or anything that you're you want to look up. Um, so my sources for this, there's a lot of them, but I kind of narrowed it down. Um, CSNY documentary 50 by 4 on Amazon Prime is amazing. It's pretty long. It's about three and a half hours long, something like that, but it's amazing. Aiden watched the first, so far he's through the first like 45 minutes of it or so. Um, Anarchy on Sunset Strip from The Guardian. Vanity Fair, an oral history of Laurel Canyon, the 60s and 70s music mecca. CreepyLA.com, Ghosts of Laurel Canyon, because mm. they had to throw me in some ghosts. Of course. And an oral history of CSNY's infamous Doom Tour by Rolling Stone. So. I'm going to start you off with a quote from Joni Mitchell. All right. She, uh, this is from a Vanity Fair article. Quote, when I first came out to L.A. in 1968, my friend, photographer Joel Bernstein, found an old book in a flea market that said, ask anyone in America where the craziest people live, and they'll tell you California. Ask anyone in California where the craziest people live, and they'll say Los Angeles. Ask anyone in Los Angeles where the craziest people live, and they'll tell you Hollywood. Ask anyone in Hollywood where the craziest people live, and they'll say Laurel Canyon. Ask anyone in Laurel Canyon where the craziest people live, and they'll say Lookout Mountain. So I bought a house on Lookout Mountain. There you go. There you go. (laughs) She is badass. I love her. Um, Okay, so Laurel Canyon. I'm going to give you a little brief history of Laurel Canyon because that's my jam. Um, remember in our last episode, we talked about there was a major stream that ran through Laurel Canyon at yes. one point, and the, the native tribe that lived there, that's where they got all their water. There was a stream running through there that provided year-round water up until the late 1800s when, of course, the agriculture business dried it up. It became a dirt road that is now, today, Laurel Canyon Boulevard. The boulevard connects Studio City, from where you were on that, that uh, studio you were at the other day, to Hollywood, and at one point, there was a proposed Laurel Canyon freeway that was supposed to provide access from the valley directly to LAX. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) I mean, honestly, it takes like an hour to get over there sometimes. I know. (laughs) Um, But as more movie stars and musicians moved into the area, the project was halted. The canyon is pretty much self-contained, meaning the streets that come off of Laurel Canyon Boulevard are not through streets, so there's like the main boulevard, and then you have these little kind of like streets that wind off the main boulevard and stop at dead ends um and they're very windy it's very picturesque and woodsy it feels very secluded it's away from it feels very far away from hollywood but it is not it's mere minutes down to the sunset strip in the early 1900s lookout mountain which is the summit part of the canyon had an inn built on top of it Um, And eventually they built this trackless trolley bus that kind of ran back and forth from the summit back down to sunset. And they would, you know, to bring people up and down to the mountain. Then the Air Force actually built a base up there at one point. 
and that's a whole story in itself but basically in short version of it there was a base up there at some point they were doing like air force training exercises out of it and then they ended up making a compound that housed a sound stage screening rooms and a bunch of storage vaults where they housed and took like housed nuclear testing videos and they would produce like military films up there and then house them up there and it was supposedly in secret for a very long time and that was in like the 40s until somewhere in the 50s um, it was decommissioned, and then it, at some point it became a rehab until two people reportedly died. And then a few years ago, Jared Leto bought it for $5 million. Jared Leto. Or Jared Leto. Sorry, Jared Leto. So, pretty boy. <laughs> you just J- gave me the dirtiest look. <laughs> because I, I, Jared, I love Jared Leto. Okay, sorry. Whoa. No. no. Um, <laughs> so, pretty boy bought the... Uh, yes. Okay. He bought the old decommissioned Air Force Base slash rehab slash now his mansion. That's a weird history of a building. You can go online or... and look up pictures from the like when they were putting it for sale. That's actually very cool because if you think about like a like a decommissioned um, base, it's very long, you know, like corridors of where they would probably put airplanes or store film or whatever so there's just these long warehouse kind of looking things so there's there's the house basically looks like it has an art gallery in it with these long white hallways with all this very cool art with like lights above them and everything it's really cool Hmm. and then like you know kitchen and all that kind of stuff um so we're going to move on to the ghost lores of laurel canyon uh jennifer aniston moved to l.a whenever i don't know what what year but when she moved there she bought a house in laurel she rented sorry she rented a house in laurel canyon and claimed it was haunted and because of that haunting she reportedly any house she moves into now she brings in like a shaman to like bless her homes because she was so freaked out by the house in laurel canyon i thought you were gonna say she brings in her friends (laughs) her shaman friends (laughs) right so wait, she does every house she moves into. She brings a yes. shaman in there. She's very well known for um, being crazy, flipping houses and like like buying houses and remodeling them. Oh, okay. So I'm gonna start doing that. By the way, <laughs> um, not that I don't sage my house every five seconds, but I will do that for my next house. Right. Um, there's a mansion conveniently called today the mansion, which was built in 1918. Uh, eventually, it became a recording studio owned by Rick Rubin. Oh, really? S- yep. Slipknot, System of the Down, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers all had paranormal experiences there. Like, really? documented, you can look them up, documented paranormal experiences. Some of them are kind of sexual, to get my drift. Probably the Red Some Hot Chili Peppers one. <laughs> probably, or Slipknot, whatever. <laughs> um, and then the reason why that place is apparently haunted is because the furniture store owner bought, um, owned it at one point, and his son apparently pushed his lover over the balcony of the home, and she died. Hmm. Or he. They didn't say if it was a boy or girl. It was just a lover. Um, legend has it that several car accidents, well, not legend. The legend is that there have been car accidents, reported car accidents, blamed on um, a ghostly carriage that gallops down lookout mountain and it turns left onto laurel canyon so if you look at google maps whatever you can see the path it takes and apparently at that intersection there are most definitely a bunch of car accidents but people claim that 
they see this ghostly carriage drawn by all these horses galloping down there, and then they freak out and get in car accidents. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a coked out rock star and you crash your car and you get a DUI. Oh, it was a ghost. It was a it was a man in a carriage. Like now nah, you're tripping balls, bro. <laughs> I was gonna say, or it's crack. <laughs> um, or but in like I would like to believe there is a ghostly carriage <laughs> up there, which would be kind of cool. Um, on that same corner, there is in 1915 there was a famous call a famous house called the Log Cabin Mansion owned by a silent film star. And in 1968, Frank Zappa uh, owned it, turned it into a studio, and it actually burned to the ground on Halloween night in 1981. Ooh, yeah, so that's kind of ominous as well. So if anybody's familiar with the Laurel Canyon area, the anchor of that kind of community is the Canyon Country Store. And it's been around for a gazillion years, since the early 1900s. Originally, it was called the Bungalow Lodge, which catered to local hunters that were staying in the inn on Lookout Mountain. That lodge burned down in 1929, and they rebuilt it and called it the Canyon County Country Store. Sorry, Canyon Country Store. Um, it's always been the Canyon meeting place. So artists in the 60s, like Graham Nash, um, who came from London to L.A. for the first time, saw David Crosby on the porch rolling joints on a shoebox top there. And David Crosby was always almost seen on the porch wearing his famous cape. Cape. You heard me right. Cape. Yep, cape. You're giving me a look like cape. <laughs> I know. I saw. I saw in the in the in the you uh, saw documentary. It? He's got that cape on. He's got a cape on. Yeah. Um, the Doors. Jim Morrison um, put the store in their song "Love Street," and the lyric is, "Quote: I see you live on Love Street. There's this store where the creatures meet." And that was talking about the country store. Morrison and his longtime partner Pam lived right behind the store. They had notorious epic fights cracked out epic fights where they would be seen many times throwing furniture clothes for some reason out the windows of their house just in anger they had a very tumultuous relationship Uh, and their house is actually still there it had burned down at one point but the guy that um that was rebuilding it after the uh, fire actually tried to re- retain like as much as the history of the house as possible and I think the actual shower that's in that house was the only thing kind of left intact that was still there when Jim Morrison was there if I'm remembering correctly he also lived up the street on Lookout Mountain at one point and he wrote the song People Are Strange after taking a walk around the canyon because there were so many hippies and stuff around at the time Joni Mitchell wrote Ladies of the Canyon her song um, about Laurel Canyon. Graham Nash wrote Our House, which is an epic song about his house in the canyon. And there's a gazillion pictures from that time of musicians um, in the 60s that lived in that, in that area that did their album covers or you know promotional stuff all around Laurel Canyon. And the Waiting for the Sun album cover for The Doors was taken in Laurel Canyon. And I'm going to play for you right now our house you you know our house probably okay Crosby stills Nash and Young
that a harpsichord? Honestly, no idea. <laughs> we, we have to get to the our house part, even if we get sued. sued. We're going to have no money from this podcast. <laughs> no one listens. <laughs> oh, this is longer than I thought it was. Aiden and I are both swaying our heads. How can you not? I'm about to bust out in song, but I will not. <laughs> Ready? Oh, never mind. Is that enough? This is going to be the rest of the podcast. <laughs> here, here we go. Da, da, da. You have to sing with me. You are you. Uh-oh, I lost my place. Here we go. cats okay that was very long sorry but i had to listen no that's a great <laughs> I song li- i had to listen to it okay throwback that's our house so what throwback. year what year was that from uh you, good question uh, Hold I'll, on. I'll check real quick our, our house, house our house that was written by graham nash by the way okay. you look at the date i don't know but i listened to that numerous times in high school so in the 1960s Bohemian artists, which were later labeled singer-songwriters, settled in Laurel Canyon because the rent was cheap and it was close to the sunset scene and clubs. There was a major fire in the canyon in 1959 that burned about 39 homes, which possibly made the rent cheaper for a bit in that area. And that's why, the, because the location and the prices of the, the rent of the houses, these little bungalows, uh, was appealing to upcoming artists who didn't have a ton of money at the time. Or, you know, some of them did have a ton of money. Uh, but they lived, like Peter Tork, who lived in the area, lived kind of on the north side of Laurel Canyon, closer to Studio City. And he had, like, a mansion over there with a pool and stuff. Um, so some of the residents that lived in the area in, in the 60s in the canyon were Peter Tork of the Monkees, who just passed away recently. Uh, Ricky Ferrey of, the Buff- of Buffalo Springfield. Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. Joni Mitchell, Jim Morrison. Chris Hillman and Roger McGinn of The Birds, Cass Elliott of The Mamas and the Papas, Carol King, Glenn Fry and Don Henley of The Eagles, Jimi Hendrix visited, Jimi Hendrix and actually Eric Clapton visited there. They didn't have houses there, but they crashed at places constantly there. They were always there. And of course, the members of CSNY, Crosby, Stills, uh, Crosby, David Crosby, I'm so used to their last names, sorry. David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, and every once in a while, Neil Young, off and on. So this was the epitome of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the canyon in the 60s. I mean, if you were going to talk about it, except for like, you know, maybe the 70s, certain things, but this area and the canyon and the whole thing was like, what was going on? And the reason it kind of made it all kind of come together in that sense was birth control was approved in 1960. So, of course, this whole free love thing was game on because AIDS didn't come about until the 80s. So it was kind of this whole period where it was like free for all. Post-pill, pre-AIDS? Yes. Isn't that what they call it? Pretty much. And I can't remember who said it, but one of the members of the band was like, look, yeah, there was STDs, but free clinics were the jam. So that's why they were kind of always promoting, you know, this progressive stuff because they wanted to go to free clinics and and get their pills to get rid of their STDs and move on to the next girl and next drug or whatever it was. Woo-hoo. 
<laughs> party. Sorry, Nana. Um, the U.S. was starting to intervene in the Vietnam War, you know, but kind of when the beginning of the 60s, we weren't, you know, the Vietnam War started, what, 65? We, we intervened. You 64, know that, right? 65, something like 64, that. 64, 65. Yeah. You know, but we were doing stuff that was kind of leading up to that. I think that people knew it was going on. But by 66, 67, that would have been. Well, for sure. And then we'll on. kind of get to that. Yeah. But the draft was still in effect. So even though there was this free love and kind of hippie movement, there was also this fear. The reason everyone was, you know, trying to be so free and screw authority was because all these men were being forced to enter the draft and enter the war, which they didn't want to go to. So it was, you know, this counterculture of like, screw you guys. Cocaine was apparently, which I did not know until this documentary, was becoming more popular. Um, it's not just an 80s thing. It's been a forever thing, which I knew, but it was more popular in the 60s and 70s than I kind of realized. Um, and obviously pot and psychedelics were a big thing at the time. Um, the, the uh, That draft, eh, blah, blah. so this all kind of sparked a, uh, like a spark, something for like change at the time you know after the 50s and the teeny bop sound and kind of this cookie cutter Beatles thing where everybody was in suits and and doo-wopping uh teenagers and musicians were looking for you know for a different sound and it's just there was a fresh sound right it's just a fresh sound yeah. there was different sounds emerging in other places you know like San Francisco was definitely like psychedelic rock like Grateful Dead you know um in LA as you were saying was kind of like, you know, as we were talking earlier, was kind of the business aspect of music, you know, and where people were kind of trying to get their music out at the beginning of the 60s, but they didn't have like a specific sound um, yet, you know, going into the 60s. So Laurel Canyon and these artists coming out of Laurel Canyon kind of had their own sound and voice, and it was leaning toward uh, a more folk rock in that area. Didn't you have something from that documentary that you were? Oh, about the sound of Laurel about? Canyon. Oh yeah, the sound. Yeah, the sound of Laurel Canyon. So, this is a quote uh, from Fifty by Four, right? That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, quote: Many rock artists have their origins in the folk scene. It was to this heritage they retreated. The sounds of Laurel Canyon in particular was characterized by the rediscovery of simple, earthy music performed by a solo singer-songwriter. So the music um, and the scene in Laurel Canyon and the Sunset Strip at this time, 66, or I guess 67, 68, kind of, yep. mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, another little quote. It was about having something to say. So it was it had very heavily to do with individual songwriters as, an, as a person, uh, looking inward, looking at the world, and giving their opinion and their take on things, being very philosophical, thinking deeply, and singing their hearts out to big crowds about it. That's basically what it was. Right. Yeah, and I can't remember where I read it or what I saw because I literally dug into so much stuff. But it was, you know, basically the 50s was, um, you know, this oh, this boy-girl thing where it's like, Boys and girls are falling in love, and we have lollipops, right. and we're going to the drive-in theaters, and it was very innocent. That's what that's what Graham like, Nash had, had was singing about when he was right a, a big pop yeah, star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to Graham Nash, but yeah, from the you know the Hollies and the Beatles, it was like you know I, yeah. I want to hold your hand thing, and you know, um, and this was a departure from that. So, 
up in this canyon, you know, everything was entangled. They were all sleeping with each other, you know, and they were all playing on each other's records at some point. They were all jamming together. They were all sharing ideas. So so eventually bands would form here and there. um, But it was, you know, it was a very much a collaborative thing. Everybody, everybody knew each other. They were all neighbors. Everybody was set up in their houses with full equipment and studios, I'm sure. Everybody was doing the same drugs. Everybody was passing around the same girls and guys. Exactly. It was all a huge music orgy up in Lowell Canyon. Yeah. They were, and you know, on that note about, you know, the girls and guys, I don't want to make it sound like they're like passing around these girls like it was this thing. It was like, you know, it was a time where, you know, women were feeling very liberated. And Joni Mitchell, um, in one of the articles I was reading from her, she was like, you know, it didn't seem like a boys club up there, which sometimes I think articles can kind of skew it towards that way with all the big guy bands that came out of there. And, you know, admittedly, she says she's like, I got along with guys very well. So I never felt threatened or like I wasn't part of the group. But, you know, Linda Ronstant was living there and Joni Mitchell and Carol King. There was a ton of women up there, musicians and, you know, somewhat what they would call quote unquote groupies, but they didn't really consider them groupies. Um, You know, that they felt like equals at the time for a brief period of time, you know, which must have been kind of nice. And she didn't feel like anyone was pressuring her or making her do anything she didn't want to do. They were, it was all just kind of a very cool time where everything seemed, everybody was on the same playing field. There's, there's, she said that when David Crosby kind of introduced her to the area that um, Eric Clapton was like, enamored by her not in like a boyfriend girlfriend way but just by her songwriting abilities yeah and that's what david crosby said too he said when he he discovered her in a in a in a coffee shop in florida when he had disappeared or whatever we'll i'm sure we'll get to that but he said he was just absolutely smitten by her because she killed it so hard in the songwriting thing and of course you're gonna fall in love with her and she's a cool person she was cool yeah and there's a cool picture i'll post it on instagram where eric they're sitting in laurel canyon and it's david crosby's kind of leaning up against this tree and oh, yeah, Joni Mitchell's playing the guitar, yeah. and there's a little kid. I don't know whose kid it is, but there's like a toddler sitting in the foreground, and Eric Clapton sitting in front of her, just staring at her, not staring at her, staring at her guitar playing. And Eric Clapton's one of the best guitar players in the world. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you should post that okay. one on Instagram, Twitter, and all that stuff. That's a great picture. Yeah. Um. So out of this whole era, we're going to talk about one of the greatest bands, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like it's like the it's like the A-E-I-O and U, sometimes Y. It's the Crosby's, <laughs> yeah. Stills, and Nash, sometimes, sometimes y. y, Young, uh, which were considered the American Beatles. So I'm going to break down the the players here a little bit. David Crosby is a local boy, L.A., born and bred. He mm-hmm. kind of, his, you know, I, don't, I didn't really kind of go into his parents, but his parents were, seemed to be, he seemed to be kind of from a wealthy family and had established parents. Um, Stephen Stills was from Dallas, Texas. Graham Nash was from England, and Neil Young was from Canada. So they were all from very different backgrounds, and they found themselves in this canyon together, making you know music, and ended up being some of the most iconic music there's been. Yeah. Um, Prior to uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young forming, David Crosby was with the Birds, which was a hugely successful band for the short period of time they were together. They were the top group in LA at one point having a residency at Ciro's on the Sunset Strip um, where they were discovered in 1964. Ciro's is actually the comedy store. Really? Yes. 
Oh, wow. Uh, the, one of their best songs was Mr. Tambourine Man, which was actually written by Bob Dylan. And Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything, Turn, 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 that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Crosby was kicked out of the band in 1967. Well, hold on. We'll this this a has second. a little. Okay, so you want to get to that in a second? Yeah. Okay, so just a little um, more. This, this whole, this, the birds were like dominating a scene on the Sunset Strip in around 66. Right. So they were, as described in the video or the documentary, they were like the front, the the head, the top of this musical scene that was going on. Right. Um, are you talking about Buffalo uh, Springfield next? Yes. Okay. Go Buffalo Springfield next. So <laughs> Can you tell we're in, all like amped about this? <laughs> I love this. So, okay. So then Buffalo Springfield, which it has uh, <clears throat> Stills and Young are in. Right. There, there are two Stills and Young. head guitar players, right? The guitar players, right. singers. Two egomaniacs. Yep. Incredible songwriters. Players. Incredible mm-hmm. musicians. Big Stills, personalities. Uh, it was con- they're considered an American-Canadian band. I would say they're more probably Canadian in America, with Stephen Stills being from America. Um, but they formed in 1966, um, and they mostly played at the Whiskey A Go-Go for most of the part, and they were the house band there for a long time. Uh, their song, For What It's Worth, became basically the anti-war song for generations, but predominantly the Vietnam War. But it was written due to the counterculture clashes between teenagers and the police in the Sunset Strip riots of 1966. Yep. So do you, I'm going to go on to the Sunset Strip riots real quick just to kind of talk about the song that became like, you know, a, this multi-generational song that's yeah. been played a million times. Do you have something to add to the Buffalo Springfield thing? Um. No, just uh, just something after your thing. Fine. Okay, so the the Sunset Strip riots, which I hadn't even really heard of, um, and some people don't even call them riots. You know, they're mild riots compared to other th- other riots that we've had, but they served a purpose for the time. Um, on November twelfth, nineteen sixty six, one of the most popular clubs on the Sunset Strip at the time was called Pandora's Box, and it was owned by a radio DJ, Jimmy O'Neill who booked, you know, because of being a DJ, he booked a lot of the hottest artists at the, at the time. The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, Sonny and Cher, the Beach Boys, the Doors, they, they, you know, just to name a few. Most of the venues at the time were all ages, so 13, 14, 15, all hanging out the clubs. Um, and this new wave of music that was kind of coming about was bringing massive amounts of teenagers to the strip and the the club was in this weird area on sunset in crescent heights that was kind of which is still here there to the, the building's not there but the triangle median that it's on so so picture like a triangle or a pie and to the building is situated on the, this like triangular it's basically a median which is what it is today you can't even imagine that there's there was a building on it but to the north side is Sunset, okay? And then Crescent Heights came up from the south and went around both sides of it to make like a triangle. And then the Pandora's box was sitting in the middle. So on three sides of this building were, were was a busy street, mm. okay? And, um, you know, kids were constantly loitering doing drugs dancing hanging out you know and then we had the whole car cruising culture 
still, you know, at that time that, you know, because the wide streets and there wasn't traffic congestion that much, you know, they would be cruising, there'd be people walking around and they'd be waiting for these cool bands to go on because these bands were so popular, they couldn't just wait to get in. So, of course, the local neighborhood businesses and and residents living in the area were getting upset because there was just too much going on. It was clogging the streets. There was kids everywhere. They were doing drugs or making out, you know, very upsetting things. Right. And the county decided to close Pandora's box, claiming that it was going to get rid of the median, like, and widen the road and put up high-rise buildings. FYI, that never happened. It's literally still the same as it is that you can drive right there today. There's just the Pandora's box isn't there. So basically this pissed off a bunch of hippie kids. Right. So, but they also, which also pissed them off, they set a 10 p.m. curfew. Ah, that's what it was. They set up a loitering law. Uh Uh-huh. And they also banned the youth permit, which allowed all these younger kids to come and hear music. So nobody under 21 could come into the clubs anymore. Yeah. See, this is where the U.S. government ruins everything. Just well, you're dealing let, with that because you get bummed out because you can't go to certain comedy clubs and music clubs because you're not 21. Exactly. Just let us have fun, bro. <laughs> if we're going to music and no. hanging out, just let us chill there. When it's you have Hollywood. Fun and you're a teenager, you do drugs, you have sex on the street, you're being crazy, you'll start a riot. Yeah, but you know what? Anyway. If you do that for 25 years and or you do a business job for 25 years and then you look back on it, who had more fun? Well, of course. The kids. Every time. I I totally agree. Take off the suit, baby. So naturally, the curfew felt like an infringement of their civil, civil, I can't even talk. (laughs) Of their their liberal, of their livering deliveries. Celebrities deliveries. (laughs) Their their civil liberty deliveries. (laughs) (laughs) Right, thank you. Their civil liberties and their right to gather in public. So tensions rose and the kids decided to have a peaceful rally. It attracted about a thousand teenagers and then you'll love this celebrities like jack nicholson and peter fonda who i picture as being these old dudes showing up but you know of course they were like they're like young hollywood young stars dudes. yeah <laughs> right <laughs> peter fonda apparently got arrested that day or at least handcuffed um unfortunately a fight broke out after a, a minor traffic accident because these cars were kind of bumper to bumper and the according to some people there was three bus loads of police officers and sheriffs i don't know the you know and then the other total was like 155 police 79 sheriff's deputies moved on the peaceful protest with tear gas and batons and then the kids in retaliation started throwing bottles and rocks at the cops so of course a whole uh-huh. shit storm happened right cars were turned over windows were broken out in the businesses and it was just a shit show and so there were kids arrested and the riots lasted a couple more nights. You know, they diminished, the, you know, the longer they kind of happened. And so in response to this, because Stephen Stills at the time was apparently coming down to, Troubadour had like a Monday night kind of new talent night. Um, I don't know if this was a Monday night. I couldn't, I didn't really look into day of the week it was on. But he was coming down on the Sunset Strip and was like, what's going on down here? Because he kind of came upon the riot and was totally appalled. So he ended up writing the song For What It's Worth, which would eventually become the rally cry song for the counterculture movement. And they recorded this song. So this happened on, what did I say, November 12th? Is that what I said? Yes, November 12th. So on December 5th, they recorded the song and they released the song on December 23rd as a single. 
so fast. Yeah. Because and it peaked at number seven um, on the Billboard charts. And according to the song's publishing house, since uh, 2017, the song has been played eight million times. Just the song. From 2017. Mm-hmm. As of 2017, the song's been played eight million times. Wow. Just the song. So I'm gonna play. If anyone doesn't know what this song is, this is for what it's worth. Written by Stephen Stills, but you know, performed by Buffalo Springfield, and then eventually covered by everyone on the, under the planet. <laughs> Immediately recognize those harmonics. Of course you do. There's something happening here. See you in 20 minutes. That's for what it's worth. So now, good. Si- so good. And a side note, the words for what it's worth are not anywhere in the song. And according to legend. That's when you know it's a good song. At some point, because, oh, I'm still playing it. <laughs> Hold on. For what it's at worth. At some point, according to um, Stephen Stills, because he wrote it so fast and they recorded it so fast, um, before they released it as they were making it he either a producer or a studio guy came in and they were listening to different tracks of other stuff that they were recording and he was like hey by the way i have another song for what it's worth like do you want to listen to this for what it's worth kind of like a throwaway Mm. saying so that's what they ended up calling the song but that's not in the lyrics of the song Um, just like in welcome to the jungle by the guns and roses you have by um, the guns and by roses. the guns and roses. You have him going. Where do we go now? Where do we go now? Uh, right. Dun. That's because they said literally, "Where do we go now?" in the song. So then he just starts yelling that. Oh right, right, yeah, yeah. There you go. Short anecdote. There you go. So back to the sixties. <laughs> back to the sixties. So the catalyst for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young was the Monterey International Pop Music Festival. Yes. Okay, this is a three-day musical event um, at the Monterey Fairgrounds of California in June of 1967. Um, this festival, the Monterey Festival, used to be a jazz festival. And then you know, the, the people that were like, hey, let's get this pop music, which is it's funny that it's called pop music, festival, go and see what we can do. And it was actually, I, from what I remember reading, it was happened very quickly, like within a couple weeks. They were, you know, unlike Fry Festival... <laughs> The fire you couldn't festival? get their shit together. Right. <laughs> the Monterey Music Pop, Pop Festival happened quickly, mm-hmm. and they did it right. So it was the first major appearances in America by The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Otis yeah. Redding, to name a few. And Buffalo Springfield was going to um, play, but they were going through band, you know, band issues. Um, Palmer, their bassist, was deported back to Canada on marijuana charges. <laughs> really? Which wouldn't happen today. <laughs> Legalize. Oh, that's funny. Um, and Neil Young had quit. Yeah. Although he did come back in October of that year to do other stuff. But Young was notorious for bailing on his bands. And he had the nickname Shaky because he would, yep. sh- you know. So he walked. Well, this is, uh, this is actually what I wanted to say earlier. Um, mm-hmm. He. So they were both 
amazing songwriters, but right. Stills wrote more of the songs, and he was more of like the not that necessarily the alpha, but he was way more assertive than Young was. Young was more right. ch- like more chill, laid back. So right. Stills was always trying to take control of him, and when Young would pipe up or something, it was kind of like Stills would shut him down. Right. So Young left right before right. the festival. Happened. Right, and and some people, you kind of get two versions of it. Some people say that they were both egomaniacs. Yeah. Stephen Stills, which I'll come to find out, was doing a lot of coke, which he would stay up all night doing stuff. He would he was like a crazy person and, and record, you know, write twenty songs in like a month or something. And he seemed to always want to be the band leader, the band leader, the leader, the the best. Neil Young seemed to be more of kind of a loner in my eyes, even though he was like super talented. They're all geniuses, by the way. I mean, in their own right. Yeah. Um, and but Young, some people to spin it in a negative way, thought Young would use bands as kind of a catalyst for his solo career. Like, I'll just be in this band, hype my name up, and then go write a bunch of solo stuff. And then when the solo stuff would kind of peter out, he would go back to a band. Yeah. Um, but my take after kind of reading stuff and looking at his career is he, he was definitely a solo artist. He just wasn't into the bullshit. And I think he loved being in a band and the collaboration of it. But I think he just, he didn't like the drama. You know, even though yeah. he wasn't sometimes involved in the drama, so he would get it would bum him out and he'd leave. It's hard. To, you know, it's hard to work ma- with people that are so good at, at what. Like right. if they're good at music, you want to work with them. But people that are good at something like that are always going to be hard to work with because they're good at music. Right. That's right. that's the hard thing about music, and this is clear. It's clearly what happened to him. Right. So during this Monterey, you know, pop music festival, he left. He wasn't going to play. So um, Buffalo Springfield was down a guitar player, basically, yeah. you know, basically two, the bassist and the guitar player. So they asked David Crosby from the Birds to fill in. And when he was on stage, he went on off on this JFK conspiracy. Like he just randomly was like, <laughs> hey, man, yeah. um, I'm smoking my dubs and... By the way, your government is full shit. He says, "I'm paraphr- I'm paraphrasing." Yeah. And JFK was shot from multiple areas mm-hmm. by multiple people, multiple guns, and within days the birds were like, "Bye, you're out." And they full on fired him. Um yeah, but hey, whatever. So what he, he was- what he did was he packed up, took his money. This is I wanted to talk about this real bad. <laughs> he, he moved to Florida. And he bought a 60-foot yes. boat. Because you because love sailboats. I love sailboats. So this, if this ever happens to me and I have money, it's literally exactly what I'm doing. I might buy his actual boat if I can find it. <laughs> so he bought a 60-foot boat, retires to Florida, and just chills for a little bit. He's got a big Yeah, he boat. just announces retirement. He's like, I'm retiring. I'm retiring Screw from you the guys. rock and roll lifestyle. Takes his right. money, buys a boat, goes, goes away. Which is, I mean, the coolest thing you possibly do. And right. then there, that's was... when he discovers Joni Mitchell. Right. He was in a cafe, right. saw Joni Mitchell, was like awestruck, had to be with her, had to bring her yep. back to L.A. And so that's what he did. He brought her back to L.A. and he introduced her to the Laurel Canyon scene. And he actually produced at least one of her albums, maybe more. Yeah. But he they, sure were they were lifelong. They dated here and there. She was I don't know how seriously they dated or what level of dating they were at. But, you know, they were definitely friends possibly a little bit more but she was definitely focused on her career and was yeah. like i'm not having any of your bullshit right um, she has a fast i know a ton about her she has a very fascinating life before she got you know she's from canada as well so she knew neil young in canada they actually kind of ran mm. uh, were in the same crowds in canada um in the same area and she kind of had a 
you know, a hard time up in Canada. Um, she got, she had a baby, she gave it up for adoption. She never, no one ever knew until like literally like 20 years ago or something. And, um, and her husband left her at some point. And so, you know, she had a very she, hard life she in had, Canada. She had a rock star life. But if you listen to some of her songs, I don't mean to digress to like Joni Mitchell, but, um, if you know her backstory and re- look at some of the lyrics of her songs, they're, they're actually heartbreaking because she had to give up a baby and she was, you know, was left by her husband and it was, you know, it's kind of sad. So anyway. So, okay. Um, so sorry, I'm going to interject. So just to, to lay it out a little bit more, this is, this is 68. So Buffalo Springfield, just to recap, Buffalo Springfield breaks up. Um, uh, and then, um, David Crosby gets kicked out of the birds, goes to um, Florida, whatever. Neil Young, um, or no, it was it was Stills. Stills he stayed active in New York with some girl. He had a he music. had a longtime girlfriend, yeah. Judy. Oh my God, I'm blanking on something, her name. Something, yeah, Judy something. But um, Judy, and she was that she actually um, was a she was a pretty good. Uh, singer-songwriter well I'm blanking on her main song that she had um, but they were on and off and he would travel back and forth to right. New York yes he was working with uh, Hendrix one of the guys from the Allman Brothers mm-hmm. um, and then he in 68 I mean this this whole like breakup getting kicked out moving to a different place hanging out with some chick and then moving back to LA that a bunch of these guys did it was like in like six months like they they all right. like had their little like woohoo and then came back to LA so Stephen Stills returns to L.A. with fragments of new songs, and mm-hmm. then I think did he bring that girl back? I, I don't I don't know. No, I think happened. she stayed there. Okay, yeah. Uh, Crosby returns to L.A. with, with Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. to, uh, discovered her in a coffee shop. I also wanted to talk about just David Crosby personality a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I used to work at a gas station in town. He lives in our not mine anymore, but town. The small town that I live in currently, right. which we won't name. Right. <laughs> I'm so, sure you could figure it out if you really needed to. Right. But so he would come I by the live, gas station. I see David Crosby weekly at the grocery store. Yeah, I would see him all the time. <laughs> he bring his. He has this old, purple truck. He comes in with. Got a beard. He comes and will he'll hang out for a little bit and talk to us. But he's got a Tesla, so he didn't really drop by that much. But right. Um, he was, like full on hedonistic hippie guy, loved to, s- smoke. He was down with whatever he's always like this dude was always chilling seemed like he just like loved living a cool life he loved like being a rock star and just like sitting in a hot tub all the time so this dude's just super chill and i love it i just loved when they were talking in the documentary (laughs) about about him he just seems like such a dude that that's just timeless anybody can hang out with him he would just like smoke weed with you and chill and tell you like 800 stories and it's just super easy to be around Okay, and it gets worse. Oh, great. But okay. we'll get there. <laughs> and never meet your but heroes. Yes, but, but you're right. <laughs> no, not saying – he just – he was self-destructive. He right, didn't do yeah. anything well, bad. They all, I think they all were, right? But they all were, yeah. yes. But, you know, but you're right. He had – he, you know, if I had to, like, label everybody, like, Young was probably the loner. You know, Stills was the egomaniac. Nash was kind of, like, the pretty boy, like, collaborator that just wanted everybody to get along. And Crosby, 
you know, was, high all the time. was the hippie self-destructive, but he also, I think if he hadn't been a musician, maybe he would have been an agent or something, a producer, right. you know, because when he came back with Joni, Mil- Joni Mitchell and he didn't have a band, he went right into, you know, really helping out every other band, you know, wasn't like, screw you guys. I need to get my own thing. He was like, Hey, what can I do for you? You need gear. I'll get you gear. You need weed. I'll get you weed. Hey, you want to rehearse with this guy? You guys should hook up with this guy and, and do that. And from all accounts from, you know, musicians and friends, he was like the real, real deal, like hippie, just trying to help out everybody, you know, shirt off your back kind of guy. Um, so at the same time that all the stuff that you were talking about going on where everybody was kind of like lost their band, milling around, um, Graham Nash, who is from England, he had a very successful band called the Hollies, which he had formed and um it was one of them it's been one of the most successful pop british bands of all times he went to la during a holly's tour and fell in love with california loved the whole vibe that was going on at the time and all the music that was kind of coming out of the areas at the time and in 1968 he met crosby and stills through cass elliott from the mamas and the papas um mama cass and he uh were friendly and then she kind of introduced him around and eventually he was like peace out this is my jam i'm leaving my band leaving my wife moving to california he tried to go back to his band at one point and and be like hey i've heard this new sound in california let's kind of incorporate this into our new sound we're kind of this 50s bebop kind of sound let's expand a little bit and they weren't thrilled but they amused him for a little bit they threw the songs out there and they were not well received well the one what was it called do you remember I, i wrote it down somewhere right here it was, I can't remember. It was, uh, oh, it's a great song. We'll we'll post something about it. But uh, yeah, it wasn't so. Marrakesh Express. Oh, it was yeah. um, Marrakesh Express. No, mm-hmm. it was uh, something reverse. Re- oh, Midas something about Midas Touch. Reverse Midas Touch or something. I'll, I'll get it real quick. It just uh, okay. Keep you going. Um, and because of that, the band was like yeah, King Midas you in need Reverse. To- King Midas in Reverse. Thank you. It hit. My brain it hit. Half works. It, it, it was in the top twenty. But it that was. wasn't good enough for him because he's a pop star. Right. Well, and, and they were super successful. Yeah. So to them, that was a fail. Right. And they basically were like, bye. And he was basically like, buy yourselves too. Yeah. See ya. They, they, the band disregarded him for a while and released yep. some pop stuff and just like overbared his uh, writing. Right. And then he was trying to he was trying to break out, grow, you know, and be different. You know, and, and they did not want him to grow. They were happy with the way they were. So he bailed. Right. Um. So, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Blah, 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 blah. So, these three dudes are hanging out in the canyon. Everybody's chill. Everybody's jamming here and there. And then one night, um, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash decided to sing this song in three-part harmony. And they were at somebody's house. Nobody can remember if it was Joni Mitchell's or Cass Elliott's house. But either way, they all have different accounts because they were all so high they can't remember where they were. <laughs> um, they sang this three-part harmony, and everyone was, like, blown away. And that was it. So they got together. They wrote a bunch of songs. They jammed. And their first album was released in May of 1969 called Fittingly, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It peaked at number six. They had two top 40 hits, um, one that we were talking about, Still's Girlfriend. It was called Sweet, Judy Blue Eyes, and the other one was Marrakesh Express. Um, because of the way that the, the, the tracks were all engineered by Bill Halverson, who is heavily in this documentary, um, 
and along with the three part harmonies they did it was a very different sound and because stills was like on coke and he's seems obsessive in a way they called him captain many hands because he played a ton of different instruments on the tracks he kept layering stuff on top of the songs uh, he was in the studio all night long uh, they needed when they just when they had to go on tour after this the the album came out their you know the three guys wasn't going to be enough so they needed to fill out their band a little bit and they decided to hire um greg reeves who was their bassist and dallas taylor who was on drums and then they brought in neil young whose solo career was kind of waning at the time and kind of not doing so great and he was also hanging out in the canyon and they're like hey man come with us and they that's that was their touring band so that's so that's how they ended up as crosby stills nash and young right because the sound that they created in this studio on their first album you know wasn't big enough to go tour with because you know basically stills created such a huge sound with all this different stuff that it couldn't just be three guys um so you know they started rehearsing and they were wearing their french jackets and their french vet there's a lot of fringe going on and david had his cape stephen stills wore football jerseys and people were like why are you wearing football jerseys like i like football jerseys good answer yeah jimmy hendrix described their music as quote western sky music which is very jimmy hendrix love him (laughs) <laughs> Who else would say Western sky music? No one. <laughs> no one. On this note, okay, so the band's together now. We're at 53 right. minutes. So should we do a part two? Because I feel like we've we've explained Laurel Canyon. We've gotten into it, the scene a little bit. And now we have come to a, a perfect point where we have the band together. We can do that. Let's do it. So how much? Our first well, how much, part how two? Much, how much? I have a lot more to go. Okay, yeah. So let's do a part two. That'll be cool. We've okay. had kind of a mini episode before even though it was an hour long right so now we'll have a part two if that's okay okay because i just i don't want to now that we're into the band i mean it's so sick and there's such a it's such a powerhouse group of just geniuses it's it's a classic story there's these dudes that are so talented and such personalities and so addicted to drugs that it just it, it it can't not have amazing things come out of it as well as horrible things, which completes a perfect story. It's like a perfect right. music story. And so right. I just want to make sure we hit every aspect of it because it's so sick. And I want to finish the documentary as well. Okay. Perfect. Cool. Yay. So this was part, part one. one. I don't know what it's going to be called, but basically we hit Laurel Canyon. We hit how we are in the beginning a little bit. The band's right. now together. You guys are informed on the Sunset Strip scene. 66, 67, 68, 69, the band, the album, the tour. We're getting into it. Joni Mitchell's hanging out. Frank Zappa had a house that burned down. It's sick, and we're having a good time. I thought the one thing about Frank Zappa that I read was that he had, because he he was the only one that had little kids around actively, he had a drug-free zone at his house. So when you stepped onto his property, drug-free zone because of his kids. Which is funny because he named his kids like Moonbeam or something like that. That has nothing to do with drug. Come on, isn't that drug? I know it's just a weird. I guy. should have been born in the '60s and '70s. That's what I was thinking I mean, when I was, I was watching I was, this, this documentary. I was, I was born like, in the This 70s. is exactly what I want to do: chill in Laurel Canyon, play guitar <laughs> with a bunch of legends that are so good at songwriting. Walk your way down to the Sunset Strip. Okay. I mean, it's just sick. I just want to re- refocus you the fact that I just said I wanted to be born in the '60s and '70s, and I was born in 1972. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delusional about how old I, I am. I was meant to be in a different generation. <laughs> But I mean, being like 
fifteen in nineteen seventy two. I don't know. I would like to. I, I, I would like to be nineteen in. I would like to be seventeen in sixty-seven. That's sick. Yeah, that would be sick. That would be sick. Okay. All right. Let's do part two. We'll do. Let's do part two first thing in the morning. Yep. We'll release this tonight. Get it out tomorrow morning's part two. That's exciting. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to our first part of our Laurel Canyon episodes. Part two will be specifically C S N. Sometimes Y. Sometimes Y. As the alphabet states. Thanks. And uh, peace out. Peace out. Peace out.